0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Grow, a New Zealand company that provides mental health training for clinicians. Our speaker today is Dr. Sean Shea, talking from the United States. He is an expert on suicide prevention and clinical interviewing. He will be talking about that issue today, and he is the founder of the Chronological Assessment of Suicide Events, the case approach, interview approach, for patients with suicidal thoughts. He runs courses in New Zealand and the timetable for this can be found at the GROW website dubdubdub.grow.co.nz. Sean is a psychiatrist and the Director of Training Institute for Suicide Assessment and Clinical Interviewing, TISA, at www.suicideassessment.com. He is the author of numerous articles and seven books including The Practical Art of Suicide Assessment* being viewed as one of the classical texts in the field of suicidology. In 2017, the British Medical Association chose Psychiatric Interviewing, The Art of Understanding, the third edition, as the book of the year in psychiatry. Welcome, Sean.
1: Thanks, this is a a privilege and an honor to be doing this.
0: So, Sean, today we're talking about the interviewing strategy known as the CASE approach or the Chronological Assessment of Suicide Events approach. We'll refer to this as a CASE approach from here on in. So can you give us an outline of what this approach is with respect to suicide assessment, please?
1: The bottom line is the Chronological Assessment of Suicide Events, the CASE approach, uh, is an interviewing strategy for uncovering suicidal ideation, behavior, planning, and intent. And it is uh, very flexible. It can be utilized in all sorts of different uh, arenas. And is certainly very useful in a primary care arena or a medical specialty arena. So it's not something that's just used by psychiatrists or mental health professionals. BP, uh, any uh, nurses, clinical pharmacists, anyone working uh, with patients, uh, I think will benefit a lot from learning how to utilize the technique. I should mention something uh, about, you know, my particular interest in the field's interest in in working with GPs and in primary uh, care settings, which by definition are very hectic, and we're well aware of that. And the first thing I can say is I honestly believe that the case approach is the fastest possible way for any clinician to uncover whether a patient seriously intends to kill themselves. And it has uh, various components to it. But for a primary care clinician or GP, it's sort of like an EKG or running an EKG. Uh, No matter how busy we are uh, in a primary care or GP setting, if a patient came in and they were, to our surprise, uh, diaphoretic, uh, complaining of substernal chest pain, a little bit short of breath, and telling us that they're having pain radiating into their left uh, arm and that they had a rough time coming up the hill uh, to get to see us, there's... Everybody in our, in, in our fields or listening to this would run an EKG. It doesn't matter how busy it is. But they want that EKG run as fast as they possibly can get it, get the information they need to find out if this guy's having an MI or not. The case approach is that for suicide. It's the fastest possible way to get this. If someone tries to tell you you can get information from someone who really wants to kill themselves quickly, Well, that's, they're just lying to you or they just don't understand it. People are going, it's going to take some time because people really want to die are very hesitant to share it. But the fastest possible way to do it, we feel, is through the case approach. The second thing, by the way, for GPs to remember is that we'll be talking briefly about, you know, different aspects of it. When they first look at it and learn about it, they'll see there's four different fields that are covered. Um, At first, it might look like, wow, this would take too long uh, in my practice. But I just ask you to remember what it was like the first time you did a history and physical with a patient. I think the first time I did one as a medical student, I clocked in around an hour and a half or two hours. I don't know what it was, but it was bad. But by the time I was a medical intern, I was doing that around 20 minutes. That was because I'd learned how to cut and paste. What you'd learn if you come to the workshop or read my writings on the case approach is you're learning the entire approach but you will learn to cut and paste it to match the needs of the particular client, which is why it's so great in a primary care setting. I should add one other thing, which is one of the reasons that we're so vested as suicidologists in primary care settings and medical specialties for that matter is that numerous studies have demonstrated that people who die by suicide, um, close to 50% of them, have seen a primary care physician, nurse, or a healthcare provider within one month. Um, a large study um, that was done in 2014 uh, by Amadana and uh, his colleagues is actually even a little bit more startling. They looked at 5,000, over almost six, almost 6,000 uh, deaths by suicide. And what they were able to do was determine who they had seen within you know, the previous year. The most startling statistic was that about one in five of them had seen some professional you know, healthcare professional within one week of dying by suicide. I find these, and a lot of them uh, were primary care. Uh, you know, This was not primarily mental health specialists they were seeing. I find those two statistics really hope-producing. That means that someone who dies by a suicide roughly one in five times is in one of our offices, and I don't mean a mental health professional, I mean in a primary care or a medical specialist's office. And if we can get those people to open up and share, we'd really drop the suicide. rate. It's also, by the way, I really think training people in things like the case approach should be done uh, in medical and nursing uh, schools right off the bat. You, know, you could give a really good program on it in a day, okay? And if you think about it, um, you can't run a code uh, in a hospital unless you take advanced cardio life support training, which is usually, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but in the U.S., that's a two-day training. This is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, suicide. I'm not sure what it is in New Zealand, but I'm sure it's up there. Surely, we could spend a day of a medical student's career to have them experientially learn how to do this. So anyway, that's some of the, uh, the aspects of it uh, that hopefully will be of value to your clinicians.
0: Thank you. So tell us about the background to the case approach being developed.
1: Um, the, the case approach, one of the things that's uh, unique about the case approach is that it really didn't come from the field of suicidology. It came from the field of clinical interviewing. That In is sort of embarrassing when I first was developing the case approach. I didn't know there was a field called (laughs) suicidology. Uh, I was someone who came from the field of clinical interviewing and had studied it for, uh, you know, several decades. And in the field of clinical interviewing and medical interviewing, which uh, I'm very vested in as well, one of the things that has happened is is we're trying to shift a little bit about how it is taught. And when I was trained uh, in medical school uh, and psychiatric residency for that matter, You know, I was taught how to interview by principals. You know, a principal might be, geez, when you first meet somebody, uh, use a lot of open-ended questions. Uh, Or a principal might be, use a lot of empathic statements and continue to use them appropriately, you know, during the rest of the interview. Those are all well and good, but the problem with that is that they don't tell a student how to do it. And so what has happened is, is we've realized that we teach principles. But in addition to principles, you want to turn to the student and say, well, here's the principle, but here are five different techniques for doing it. The techniques are very concrete. We literally phrase it. We show what words to use. And we give it a name, a title to the technique. That way the student can be taught, uh, tested, and literally then... A practitioner, you know, anyone who's working with me uh, in this particular podcast, you can go out with some of these validity techniques, you know, later today and utilize them because they become sort of like a surgeon's scalpel. You know, there's eight blades, nine blades. Um, each of these techniques is a little bit different. One of the things that's uh, valuable for clinicians using the case approach or learning the case approach in a primary care setting or a GP setting is that. The strategy itself is being demonstrated for use in uncovering suicidal ideation, but the interviewing techniques that it is built from, and there are seven of them, those seven techniques were not developed for suicide per se. They were developed to uncover anything that is sensitive or taboo or difficult for a client or a patient to talk about. So in a GP setting, where you're typically talking with a large number of people who have substance abuse problems, who are victims of domestic violence, who have histories of incest, uh, who might not be taking medications the way they're being recommended by the prescriber, all sorts of things they don't want to share family secrets, personal secrets, even what their symptom picture looks like. Because they may be worried that you're going to increase a medication for their CHF or decrease a the medication. They're worried how you're going to respond to what they say those seven techniques that anyone who comes to this particular workshop or reads my writings by the way there's 15 validity techniques but seven of them are used in the case approach um you can utilize you can utilize those techniques with probably almost every patient walks through a a primary care clinicians or provider's office um so to to give you an example of just one Technique that's used in the case approach that is usable in many different ways, or two of them. Uh, one is called normalization, and it's a way of raising sensitive material in a way that you meta-communicate to, to the patient. You know, it's okay to talk to me about this thing. And the technique looks very much uh, the way you would expect with its name. With suicide, I might turn to a patient uh, who maybe is looking uh, very. Um, pained in the uh, interview. I explore what's going on. You know, they probably came to me for diabetes uh, or CHF, or both. But the bottom line is, as I can turn to that person and say, you know, some of my uh, uh, patients, Louise, they're going through as much stress and difficult times as you are. They tell me they find themselves having thoughts of killing themselves. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts like that. And boom, you're in. And you do it in a way that was not offensive to the person or put them off. But I want to show you something about that technique. I can use that uh, with just about every patient uh, that's coming through uh, who I'm prescribing medications as a GP for. So uh, you have a patient who's on uh, two different or three different types of medications uh, for their congestive heart failure. I could turn to them, and let's say one of them they're using is a BID medication. I might turn to them and say something like this I might say, you know, Annie, a lot of my patients who uh, are taking medications, especially if they have to take them twice a day, they tell me that it's pretty easy to forget to take the medications, at least one of them. I'm wondering how many medications you might have missed on a typical week since we last met. That's a beautiful example of a normalization. I made the patient comfortable saying it because I told them it's very common for people who are taking medicines twice a day to forget them. And Boy, it works. Now, here's a second technique that's used in the case approach that is also applicable across so many places in uh, a GP's busy practice. It's called gentle assumption. And um, it works like this. With suicide, it will look like this. It's, let's say a patient shares with you they've thought of overdosing. And actually, they've given a fair amount of thought to it. And so you explore it very carefully to find the extent of action. They actually took the pills out. Did they take any pills? How many pills? We'll talk a little bit about that later. But then, you know, you always wonder, is that really this person's method of choice for killing themselves? Or are they hiding what they're really thinking of doing? You know, if they're way out in the country, the rural areas, they might be considering using a gun. They might be considering using some type of poison uh, that's a, an insecticide or a rat poison or something like that. If they're in a the city, they might be thinking of, you Not know, being in front of a subway, uh, if the city happens to have busy subways. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that with those people, you don't know if they're telling you the truth. Even though they told you all about that overdose, you don't know if that's the main method of choice for them. So, what we recommend is, is that after they've told you all about the overdose, you just simply turn to them and you'd say, uh, "Boy, Annie, I'm just wondering, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself?" I want to point something out. I didn't say this. Annie, I'm just wondering, have you thought of other ways of killing yourself? Because what has been shown is that if you ask people that question, the have you question, uh, they will frequently not tell you the truth. Whereas if you gently assume, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself? They're much more likely to share this. Now, the same technique that we're going to use or your clinicians can utilize uh, in uncovering suicidal ideation, gentle assumption. Well, that's also useful uh, with medications uh, and wondering whether they're taking uh, the medications as prescribed. So for instance, I could raise with well, that patient I described, uh, who's taking a, a med BID uh, that I'd started up, you know, just the last time I saw them. And I could use my normalization. I could say, you know, Annie, a lot of my patients who are taking medications twice a day, like you are, they tell me it, it's pretty easy to forget to take one. I'm wondering uh, how many medications did you t- miss, perhaps, per week, since the last time I saw you? But this time, tag on the gentle uh, um, uh, assumption, and you'd say, um, "Well, uh, excuse me, I'm backtracked there." That was an example of both the normalization and the gentle assumption, because I literally said, "How many doses have you missed?" Uh, I hope that made sense. I sort of misstated. But the first part was the normalization. The second part was the gentle assumption. So techniques, very valuable outside of suicide as well. By the way, you can add a third. That's, by the way, when you pair the techniques like that, that's called a doublet. Uh, Watch this one. It's a triplet. I'm going to add what's called a symptom amplification, which we also use in the case approach. It'll make sense when you hear it. Uh, Annie, you know... um, a lot of my patients who are taking a medication twice a day tell me it's very easy uh, to forget uh, to take a medication. I'm wondering how many doses you might have missed. You know, in a typical week since the last time I saw you, you know, four doses a week, eight doses a week. Uh, that last part, where you actually give a number that's very high, that's called a symptom amplification. And a lot of people are going to want to minimize. So when they minimize from the symptom amplification, if you said four a week eight a week, that would be a lot with a person who's uh, just taking a BID. Um, Bottom line is, even if they minimize and say, oh no, I don't miss, you know, eight a week, but geez, I probably miss, you know, maybe four or five a week. Uh, uh, There's actually a study done that demonstrated that using these types of techniques, clinicians got much better information about whether people were actually taking medications or not. Now, returning this to suicide, the point is all of these techniques that we're learning to use in the, or they're used in the case approach for suicide are usable in other settings. But as far as uncovering suicidal ideation, they're extremely potent. So once again, taking this back to the suicidal patient, um, I might turn to them after I've heard about the different ways they've thought of killing themselves. And I might say this, you know, Annie, on your very worst days, you know, how much time do you spend thinking about killing? of your waking hours, 80%, 90%. Now, that's the symptom amplification. And as the person minimizes down, they might say, oh, man, not not 80% of the time I'm awake. I, I don't know. My worst days? Probably, you know, half the day. So you can see that you get much better truth by using the symptom amplification, which allows the person, people just in general, People are going to minimize reporting suicidal ideation. Uh, It's embarrassing. It's stigmatizing. Uh, Sometimes they have fears of what will happen if they share a lot of it. And so many people will minimize. I think uh, your um, providers will find that symptom amplification, curiously, what it does is it allows the patient to use their defense mechanism of minimizing. But where they land still tells you there's a major problem. So by saying how much on your worst days are you thinking of killing yourself, 70% of your waking hours, 80%, 90%. Well, they minimize down. Let's say it's literally 80% of the day. When they minimize down and they say, oh, no, yeah, not, not 90%, not, I don't know, maybe half the day, you still know, boy, if they're thinking about killing themselves, 50% of their waking hours, this guy's thinking about it a lot. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, perfect sense. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So talking now about specific time frames that you suggest in the case approach, yes. why is this important?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I've been describing you know, the various techniques that are used within the time frames, the interview strategies. So let me describe the four time frames. Um, first, I'll just mention them. The first time frame is simply called the presenting events, uh, the suicide events. By suicide events, we mean suicidal thought, planning, any actions. It's very broad. The second time frame that you explore after that is called the recent events. That's roughly the two months before the interview has happened. The third one is called past events. And then the fourth one that you look at is what's called immediate events. What we mean by that is what type of suicidal thoughts is the client having while they're sitting there talking? So literally stuff that is – so in other words, if you're talking with a patient and they said, last night I was thinking of killing myself, that's not an immediate event. The Immediate events is when you as a GP and you've explored these first three regions and now you're exploring their immediate events, you'd say, no, uh, uh, Mackie, I really need you to, to let me know what you really feel. At this point in time, as we're sitting here talking, what kinds of thoughts are you having about killing? Uh, That's called the immediate events. Now, the reason they're important um, is as follows. Uh, First of all, the presenting event, which is the first thing you ask, which, by the way, you could use a normalization like we described earlier. Uh, People who are going through as difficult times as you are frequently have thoughts uh, or say they have thoughts of killing themselves. Have you had thoughts like that? You can use another thing that's another technique. that's simply called a shame attenuation. It's another validity technique that dampens down shame or stigma. It's usually very simple, very powerful with suicide. One of my favorite ways to raise the topic of suicide. I just might say something like this. Uh, Louise, with everything that you're going through, have you been having any thoughts? It makes it easier for the person to share, whereas the normalization does it by telling the, the, the patient or implying, I've heard this from other people. The shame attenuation makes it easier by Meta-communicating to your patient, I get the, how bad your pain is, so I understand why you might have suicidal thoughts. You do that by simply saying, with everything you've been going through, have you been having any thoughts? But when you raise that, then obviously the patient will present with you whether they're having suicidal thoughts or not. That's why it's called the presenting events. And whatever that presenting event is, uh, you want to try to find out the extent of action on. Uh, before I describe the other three uh, regions and why they're of value, I do want to mention a really important aspect uh, that is often missed just by clinicians, and I'm including uh, there are many clinicians in mental health uh, that actually miss this uh, very core principle. There is a big difference in getting one of our patients to tell us the truth about suicide between interviewing someone who's having suicidal thoughts but is not that close to implementing it versus someone who is in agonizing pain and has been in agonizing pain often for months or years and views that suicide is the only possible way to get out of their pain. And they've already decided how they're going to do it. and They're going to do it either within 24 hours or seven days. And remember the study that demonstrated that people who died by suicide, almost one-fifth of them, had seen somebody in that exact time frame, and they had often seen a primary care clinician. Well, those people, we call those people 95 fivers. And what we mean by that is that 95% of that particular person really wants to die. Only 5% of that person still has a will to live. Um, these are people who are really at extremely high risk and they are the people, they are some of the people from the statistics that are walking into the primary care clinician's or GP's office. So getting those people to tell you the truth, well, that's a different ballgame. Because the, let's just say a general principle for everyone listening to this to remember is that with a 95-5, someone who really, really intends to kill themselves within days, um, that person, when you ask them what have they thought of doing, in other words, they admit they're having suicidal thought to you. And you say, oh, what have you thought of doing? A large number of those people, in my opinion, will not share their method of choice first. So let's take a typical person who might be with a GP. You're following them for diabetes and hypertension. Um, you uncover that they're very depressed. You sensitively raise suicide with them. Um, with a uh, shame attenuation, you might say, with everything you're going through, have you been having any thoughts of killing yourself? They admit yes, and then you say, I think all of us would say, Oh, what have you thought of doing? Well, let's picture of a patient who actually has um, tried to overdose uh, and did overdose about, uh, say, seven weeks earlier. Took 15 aspirin, nothing happened to them, uh, fortunately. Um, and they decided afterwards, this is not for me. I could end up brain dead by doing an overdose or something. I'm going to shoot myself. So they've procured a gun. They've learned how to use the gun. And let's say 48 hours before you're interviewing them, they actually had a gun in their mouth uh, loaded with a safety on. Okay. Remember, we're saying that one in five people who died by a suicide frequently been sitting with a primary care clinician or a medical specialist in the week before they kill themselves Um, that particular person if you ask them what have you thought of doing well I'll tell you what the one thing they're not going to share right off the bat is the gun because they're worried you're going to take it and if you take it they have in their opinion no way out of their pain so that person will tell you about the overdose problem if they're going to tell you anything, and they'll tell you about the overdose, and they'll share with you that they, if you do good questioning, you are share that they actually uh, took 15 tablets. and It is very easy to get stuck into the idea, oh, I am hearing the most dangerous material that is plaguing this particular person. But obviously, you're not. Their method of choice is to shoot themselves, and you've got to find it. So the principle to take from this is the really dangerous patients and certainly GPs see them, um, frequently will not share a method of choice first. That if they've had three things they've thought of, I think a lot of them will share the first two first, uh, and then the method of choice if they're starting to feel more comfortable with you. That's really what's happening, is they're trying to see how, how you're going to respond to what they're saying. So with that in mind, after you've found the overdose with a particular person, that's the presenting event, let's say, Uh, with the patient I was just describing, who had CHF and diabetes. With that particular person, then you want to move into the recent events, which is the past two months. So you just simply would bridge into that and say, well, you know, Annie, over the past two months, uh, have you been having any other thoughts of overdose? And they might say, well, I've had thoughts, but they're not nearly as bad as what I was describing. And then instead of saying, have you thought of other ways of killing yourself? You use your gentle assumption and say, "You know, Annie, what other ways have you thought of killing yourself?" And if you're lucky, that person within who's 95-5 or who really wants to die, they may they may share the gun. And if they do share, and they say, "Well, I might have had some thoughts of shooting myself," and I said, "Well, geez, do you have a gun?" And they said, "Well, I do have a gun. Now we live on a farm, and yeah, we, we've got a gun. Almost all farms have guns." Uh, and I say. Um, have you ever gotten the gun out while you were having thoughts of shooting yourself? And uh, she might say, yeah, I might've done that. And you might say, oh, when's the last time you did that? She said, well, about two nights ago, my husband was gone for the night and uh, it's his gun. And I, um, I got it out then. You know, uh, Annie, where were you when you had that gun? I said, I was sitting at the kitchen table with him. He said, well, help me to understand this, Annie. About two nights ago, you got your husband's gun out. You're sitting in your kitchen. It sounds like a really, really sort of scary night to me or a tough night for you. Help me to better understand what you went through that night, but sort of walking me through this. So you have the gun out. Did you actually load the gun? And she'd say, well, yeah, I loaded the gun. I said, what did you do next after you would loaded the gun? And she'd say, I'd say something. Um, well, I, I put the uh, the gun up to my head, actually. And I said, you know, Annie, when you had the gun up to your head like that, uh, you got it loaded, you said. Had you taken the safety off? And she said, yeah, I took the safety off. And I said, well, what kinds of thoughts were going through your head then? And she described the thoughts. And if she doesn't say this, I might turn to her and say, well, any Obviously you put the gun down, but what made you put the gun down? Now she might say something uh, that can be really built upon. She might say, I, I, I couldn't do that to my husband or to my kids. Um, even if I decided to kill myself, I, I don't think I should do it that way, that they'd see that. Uh, and I'd say, well, I'm really glad you put the gun down and I want to get a better idea of just, you know, how much time you were spending thinking about it back then. So on that particular night, how long did you have the gun to your head like that? She says, oh, I put it up to my head and put it down probably over the course of 30 minutes. And I was drinking at the time. I said, you know, Annie, is the gun, uh, where's the gun now? She goes, no, my husband keeps it in a bureau by our bed. I said, I'm just curious, is it still loaded? She goes, "Uh, actually, uh, I sort of keep it loaded now. Well, bottom line is that particular clinicians, there's a very good chance they're going to save this person's life because obviously they're going to get the gun out of the house and they're going to make sure that the husband is well aware of what's going on with that gun, etc. But that's the kind of, of questioning that anyone can do. There's nothing, nothing difficult about understanding those questions except understanding sort of the techniques that are using them. By the way, those techniques, that whole series of questions, those are actually called behavioral incidents. We all use these in our, in our, our interview. But there's are fact-finding questions. When I said, did you load the gun? Uh, there are sometimes sequencing questions where I say, what? and after she said she loaded the gun, I said, what did you do next? Okay. That's a sequencing behavioral incident. But that's all you have to do to get this person to tell you the truth about how far they went on an action, which is to use a series of behavioral incidents to have them sort of make for you, uh, Louise, a what um, you might call a verbal video, meaning that by you using these behavioral incidents, as the patient answers those questions, you sort of see it unfolding in your head. That's all you have to remember, is I want to see the whole thing unfold. If I can see the whole thing unfold, I'm much more likely to see the truth. Uh, But quickly, back to the other uh, regions. After you explore the recent events, and there's more to it, because uh, sometimes people believe it or not, um, but it's definitely true, which is sometimes people are so hesitant to share a method of choice that even with the gentle assumptions, they don't share. There's other techniques that we don't have time today to talk about that you can use to get those people to share even a really hidden method of choice. Once you've found out over the past two months, you want to find out what happened in the past. That's simple by simply saying, geez, uh, Annie, have you ever tried to kill yourself in the past? And all you focus on is actual attempts, not suicidal ideas. That'll take you forever. And what you find out is you quickly try, if they say yes, you just want to find out was there a particularly dangerous one. You don't have to explore all of them. In fact, that's a waste of your time. You just want to find out if there's a particularly dangerous one because if there was a really dangerous one, um, and the method they used... It's the same method they're telling you they're going to use now. Um, and they have the same sort of types of onset of the suicidal thought, the same type of angst. That's almost sort of like a its a preview. It's as if they practiced the technique in the past. Uh, and that may indicate that they're even more dangerous. And then finally, uh, the immediate events. Obviously, you turn to them and say, geez, what kinds of thoughts are you having right now as we speak? Um, you know, for a... Uh, Uh, another principle to remember as a general practitioner is that uh, if you do this effectively, the way we're describing, by the way, um, you know, the typical case approach only takes about a minute or two. Uh, But with a person who's close to killing themselves, who's going to withhold, well, yeah, it could take seven, eight minutes. I've seen it take longer than that. But it's still the fastest possible way to get that person to tell you the truth about their suicide. So that's like running the EKG. You yeah, know, so I typically do it as very sh- quick and short, but it can be expanded out as you need as a provider to use to get the truth to save the person's life. But in any case, uh, the, the bottom line in this is this material is very teachable. And we could train medical and nursing students to do this. and We can watch them to see if they know how to do this.
0: So we've worked our way now through the four timeframes and we've gathered lots and lots of information. What do we do with this information now?
1: Well, actually, that's a great question. And one of the, one of the issues in a primary care uh, clinic is obviously you have to decide what's essentially you can almost be like a triage in an emergency department. You've got to decide to what degree do I want this person to be seen rapidly and quickly. Obviously, someone like Annie, (laughs) you're going to be seen quickly, and you're going to be making sure that they're seeing someone quickly. Um, But one of the things that can help you to to decide that is, by using the case approach, you you see the uncovering and the depth of the suicidal thought. Now, I had, I'll never forget, I used to run, by the way, a psychiatric emergency, and it was a devoted psychiatric ED, the medical ED of the uh, sister hospital was across the street. But anyway, I vividly remember a primary care uh, physician, uh, who is a great, he was a physician's physician. Uh, I actually was lucky enough uh, when I was doing uh, uh, my medicine rotations to have him as a or I'll never forget when I was the medical director then ultimately of this unit, uh, him walking in the door uh, of our emergency room uh, with a patient uh, and walking up and telling us that, geez, I was just seeing her down in my uh, in office uh, and uh, she's really having a lot of suicidal thoughts, and I, I thought she should come up and see. So he literally made a decision that it wasn't even safe to let her out of the office, that she might not actually go to the emergency room or whatever. But that came from understanding the depth of her suicidal planning and thought and pain. Um, so obviously, that's a more extreme case. But the bottom line of this is, is that the case approach will allow you to get a better idea of how in how aggressively you have to get this person seen. And, you know, that can range. Just because a person's having some suicidal thought, I mean, a lot of people have vague suicidal thought, that doesn't mean they have to be seen emergently. It doesn't mean you have to have them seen that night or the next day. Um, but the bottom line is, is that people vary. And this the case approach helps you to get a better idea, as well as some other things that you can gather, of how urgent it is for the person to be seen. Now I'm not sure in New Zealand, obviously, because I don't practice there. Um, in, in the states, you know, we have our community mental health centers, um, which are you probably have something similar. I would think. Is that true?
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Community and mental health teams.
1: Okay, um, but I got to tell you, in the states, uh, you can take a, if you just refer the person to them for an outpatient assessment, you, they might not be seen for weeks uh, because of the backlog. Uh, and the shortage of clinicians. And so you know, if you're as a primary care clinician, you're making a decision as you know what that's not okay with me with Annie. Um, she needs to be seen faster or someone uh, else who might have not quite as much suicidal thought. And so what you can do is you can put the heat on um, to I get I need this person seen tomorrow. And if you have other people within your facility, and I don't know to what degree there's integrated care um, in New Zealand where. We're in the States, you know, trying to put more and more mental health professionals uh, inside the primary care clinic. I'm assuming that that's probably something you guys are, are invested in as well, but yeah, well then, you know, by hearing what's going on, you get an idea of maybe you're going to walk them down the hall, you know, because the social worker, uh, the psychiatric social worker's office is literally in your building down the hall. Um, so the trick is to trio. Now, the one principle that's really uh, valuable to remember is that it can be quick you know if a person walked in and started to say yeah i've had uh definite thoughts of overdosing In fact, i did overdose," uh, you know uh, three weeks ago the one thing i would caution your gps and uh, nurses uh to not do uh, in that primary care setting is do what i call a, a premature triage so at some level you sit there and yeah you're saying well this person's going to be seen. I want a mental health professional to see. It. You should. Okay, that makes sense. If they overdosed three weeks ago. That decision makes sense. But what I mean by a premature triage is what you don't want to do is almost as soon as that person says that to you, you, you stop uncovering their suicidal ideation because you've already decided I want a mental health professional to see. Uh, assuming that the mental health professional will get better information. And that is sometimes a lethal assumption. A person being referred to the mental health professional and running an ED, I saw this all the time, people being referred to us, well, they're talking to a stranger. They're worried what's going to happen to them, whether they're going to be um, hospitalized against their will. Oftentimes, they won't tell us the truth. Whereas if you are a practitioner who has maybe worked with them since they were kids, and they really respect you, they really like you, and you take the time to do the case approach. and What you discover is that overdose is not her method of choice. It's a gun. Which if you just send her to me, I may never find out about the gun because she doesn't like me as much as she likes you. And she doesn't respect me at all because she doesn't even know who I am, whereas she respects you a lot as her GP because she's seen what kind of person you are. So the point I want to make is If a person opens up about suicide in your office, use things like the case approach to uncover as much of their suicidal ideation and planning as you possibly can at that point in time, because you may be the best shot at getting that information. And if you refer them to me, if you even walk walk them down the hall to me as a social worker, by the time they hit my office as a social worker, they might have already started to have what we call transportation cures. Uh, meaning that by the time they see you, they're feeling a lot better than when they were in that uh, uh, GP's office uh, because now they're second-guessing that they've shared anything and they're worried they're going to be uh, put into the hospital against their will, for instance. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's a takeaway from this.
0: Perfect. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I just wonder if you could wrap up the podcast with a few take-home messages for our listeners, please.
1: Uh, that would be my pleasure, uh, Louise. Um, the, the first thing is is to remember that in a primary care setting or a medical specialty office, you probably have a better chance to spot someone who has suicide than a mental health professional. Um, they're, they're seeing probably primary care clinicians and medical specialists a week before their death or the month before their death more frequently than they are going to see a mental health professional. Um, second thing would be that um, There are uh, various types of techniques that you can learn that can allow you to get better information faster. You can use them even outside of uh, suicide assessment, these validity techniques. But I would urge you to learn about these techniques. And of course, when they're put together, there's a strategy called the case approach, which I think is the fastest possible way to uncover suicidal ideation in someone who's really dangerous and really intends to kill themselves. Um, And maybe the final uh, take home is the one that I, I ended with at the end, which is that You have a real advantage over almost any mental health professional and certainly any mental health professional that the patient's never seen before as a GP. Um, These people know you, they respect you, they like you. If they share suicidal ideation with you, take the time to find out as much as you possibly can, because if they are close to killing themselves, they are much more likely to share their method of choice with you than with me.
0: Thank you, Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today.
1: Oh, thanks. It's really been fun. Thanks for getting the chance.
0: All right. If you're a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources, including Sean's book, on our website. You can also access other free products, such as webinars and med cases. Thanks for listening today.